The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, training, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Janine Roth. Janine is the author of 10 books, including New York Times bestsellers, When Food is Love, Lost and Found, and Women, Food, and God. She's appeared on a number of national television shows, including The Oprah Winfrey Show, 2020, The Today Show, Good Morning America, and The View. Her latest book is This Messy, Magnificent Life, A Field Guide. You can read an interview with Janine in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Janine Roth, welcome to Essential Conversations. Uh, Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Well, I'm happy that you're here. I read the book. It's really interesting. I loved, uh, you know, I could spend the whole 20 minutes just talking about the title, and I will come back to this, this messy, magnificent life. I thought that was just really apropos. Uh, but let me, let me start with something a little different. So in the foreword to the book, uh, Anne Lamont, is, uh, she wrote the foreword, and she begins like this. Just once, I'd like to read a piece on Janine Roth that does not mention food. So that's the quote from Anne. I'm going to do my best to not mention food in this conversation. I'm not going to ask you about those things, and we're going to explore some of the other aspects of this book and not you know, go to, to, I guess, where, at least from what I'm reading from Anne Lamott, where most people tend to go when they ask you questions. So we'll try not to mention food uh, more than I've just mentioned it in this sentence. <laughs> you know, it is okay, though, because a third of the book is still about the relationship with food, and that's how a lot of people know me. So if you just happen to mention it, I'm <laughs> right there with you. Okay, well, we can, we can get that out of the way if you like. You know, I, I realize that there's a course that goes with the book. Does the course deal with food issues? It's a master class. It's a one-hour master class. It's called Women, Weight, and Power, Releasing the Energy of Obsession. And Um, It actually builds on some chapters in the book. There are two chapters. One is called If I Were Gloria Steinem, 
And another one is called the Red String Project. And it's about the amount of energy that many of us, mostly women, have bound up in obsession and judgment and shaming our bodies, objectifying our bodies, and about the steps to take to release that energy. Because what I say is that I often ask a group of women, what would happen if you could release the energy you spend on obsessing and or judging your body and use that energy for yourself, for your children, for your family, for the earth? It would be enough energy to light up a city. I really feel (laughs) really strongly about this. So So if people want to Do they have to read the book before they take the course? They need to buy the book and send us the receipt and they could go to janinerothbook.com. So no, they don't need to read the book, um, but hopefully they'll have read a little bit of the book. Uh, They just need to send us the receipt for the book. So the course itself is free. Yes. Great. So janinerothbook.com. Okay. So that's it. We're not going to talk about food. (laughs) <laughs> we we did a little bit, but let's let's go into something else. Let's talk about why life is messy. I I, t- I told you I love the title, messy and magnificent. How is it that a messy life can also be magnificent? What do you have in mind when you say the the title? Yeah, I, you know I I try to describe how I feel about life itself in that title and. That ends up coming from a line in the book. And life is messy, as we all know. All we have to do is look at the challenges that we face every day. From little tiny challenges, having a long to-do list, not getting it done, bigger challenges, being sick, being hurt, having people we love be sick or hurt or die. Uh, challenges at work, feeling rejected, feeling abandoned, uh, not uh, being, not ha- getting enough sleep on a regular basis. So there are multiple challenges just in being alive on this human plane, in this human body. Life here on earth comes with many challenges, not the least of which is that there's, we have these vulnerable bodies and <clears throat> as Ram Dass calls it, as we get older, we talk about the organ recital. What is going on here and what's going on with our knees? So, you know, there, there's just inherent in being born. There's an inherent messiness. Even really young kids feel that, the, the bullying or the rejection or wanting to belong. And so rather than try to get rid of those, challenges because there really isn't any way to get rid of them. There isn't a way. Just when we think one thing is all together and another part comes together, then another part falls apart. And that's how it is. And I used to try to fix it all and think if I could just fix it, then there would be clear selling. And I learned that there wasn't any fixing it. So I decided in this book to use the messiness as a doorway to what I call the magnificent. And that's really what I did in my books with food as well. I know I'm mentioning that. 
Um, but I, I do the same thing in those books rather than trying to get rid of or fix or judge or shame or deprive yourself. You turn towards what it is that you think is so shameful or difficult or challenging and you use it as a doorway. And, you know, I give certain steps daily little teeny things that people can do for a couple of minutes a day that facilitate this. You know, I was, one of the things that really struck me about, about um, the notion of this, this messy, and I, I was going to, I'm, I'm going to say messy and magnificent. I don't think that you really juxtapose the two. I think you see them, I don't know if hyphenated is the right word, but it's not magnificent when it's not, it's not magnificent when it isn't, wait, it's not, <laughs> yes, that's right. Magnificence is not at the expense of messiness. It's magnificently messy is, is how I'm reading this. And it made me think of in uh, Qigong practice, there's a stance you take called mug, mug, yeah, monk begging for rice. And it's just a, uh, it's a standing posture with both hands extended slightly uh, your elbows at your side, but, but hands extended as if you're receiving a gift. And that's the gift of rice. But it's explained as taking a stance where you accept without resistance what the Taoists call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of just being alive. And that's what I thought this book was about. Not resisting, not changing, not fixing, just in a sense, reveling in the mess. Yes, and I, 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 that's exactly what it is about, or at the very least, accepting it and having a completely different relationship to it. I tell a lot of stories through in the different chapters of the book, because every chapter is about a different challenge or a different kind of everyday messiness, and, and ex- some of them quite extreme. For instance, I talk about how my husband and I lost all of our money. And I talk about when I broke my back in an accident. I also work with students regularly. I teach six day long retreats twice a year that meet. Um, and, and I work with these students during the year as well. And so we, I talk about their challenges, their messiness, and how we've learned to actually approach them or have a different relationship to them. You know, when you stop fighting something and wanting it to go away, as you just said in that that beautiful description of that posture, you have a completely different relationship to it. Your energy doesn't go into the battle, into the war, into wanting to get rid of. And there's a way that you you feel it, you accept it, you turn in a way towards it. And by that, I mean, um, you become aware of what I call in the book, the crazy ant in the attic, because we have this voice every single day that is judging us and or shaming us and or telling us what we did do that we shouldn't have done. And I name that voice in the book and really encourage people to realize they're not that voice. Most of us are merged with that voice. That right away lets go of some of the fight that we that we have and trying to prove that we're worth it, prove that we're lovable, 
a lot of us just keep on trying to prove that with no need to prove that. But part of it is because of the crazy aunt. And then I also encourage people to come out of their minds and into their bodies, which means being in the present moment. When you're in the present moment, because the mind can't be in the present moment, it's always ricocheting from the past into the future. The body only knows what's happening now on a sensation level, on a breath level. And when you actually take one full breath a couple of times a day, really follow your breath a couple of times a day, then you find your mind calming down. And I say, as part of that practice or tool, um, to use your eyes to see, your ears to listen, your feet to feel the contact on the earth. And suddenly you become aware of wonder. You become aware of color. You become aware of bird sounds. You become aware of everything you have that you didn't realize you had because you were always focusing on what you didn't have. Right. So this crazy ant in the the mental attic is is like what in other systems they call the the critic or the critical mind, and that's always harping in, in the background. So. What I just want to underline something you said, just to make sure people heard it, that this is not about fixing. And so much, it seems to me, and I'm asking, this is a, I'm asking for your comment on this. It seems to me that a lot of American spirituality and even psychology is still locked into the mode of fixing. There's something wrong with me. I have to fix it. My mind shouldn't be ricocheting from the past to the future. I should be, you know, just present in the moment. And, and you really just said the mind can't do that. So don't, if I'm hearing you right, don't stress out about that. Use your body because your body's only in the present moment. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. Yes, that's right. And, you know, after meditating for 30 years... I had a rigorous spiritual practice, and also I've been in therapy for all of those years as well. I kept on feeling like I was, there was going to be an end place I was going to get to where I was going to have a different nervous system than I had, a much calmer mind. I was going to, as I say in the book, have a nervous system like my husband's who goes into parasympathetic Uh, mode very easily, calm, easy, fluid mode, where I sometimes feel like a raw nerve. And I thought that that raw nerveness was going to end and that everything that I considered wrong with me, and I put that in quotes, was going to be right. And then that's not what happened. I, I was shocked that I wasn't a different person with a different childhood. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to have a different childhood, but somehow I felt like that was going to change. And that, what I realized 
changes was that I'm not bothered by those things. That, for instance, the crazy aunt can blabber on all day long, but if she's in the attic and I'm a couple floors down, it doesn't matter what she's saying. I'm not listening to her. Or if there's a part of myself that gets triggered, and I say in the book that we all usually have three themes that we go round and around about. One of mine is I'm never going to belong. A second one, I'm not lovable. I'm not enough. Those are my three main themes that can get triggered by practically anything. But having really been aware of those things, when they get triggered now, what happens is I can turn to any one of them, the feelings that, that come up from them, and be kind. There's a fierce kindness towards what's hurt. And instead of, no, instead of judgment, instead of, oh, I can't believe this is coming up again. I thought this was going to be fixed. When is it going to go away? You know, all any feeling wants is to be welcomed with tenderness and it will relax immediately. So this sounds like what you call in the book, sublime freedom from our incessantly restless minds, right, and I'm still quoting you, right in the middle of, the, of ordinary life, that this freedom is not, it's not an escape from the ordinary. It's just freedom in the midst of it. And, and I think you're describing it really, really well, which leads me to, to the following question. I got the sense from the book, and you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, it's your book, but I got a sense from this messy, magnificent life that and this may be too harsh, but anyway, a, there, there's like a stripping away of formal spirituality. Near, near the end of the book, you say this. After so many years of so many practices and so many prayers, I have only one left. Let me remember to pay attention to the ordinary, not just to the extraordinary. So it, am I right? I mean, you seem to be letting a lot of things go and just resting in the essential. Yes, with awareness and attention, because I think that paying attention, and as we talked about before, using your eyes to see, your ears to hear, and appreciate. There's another place in the book where I talk about having roamed the earth looking for essential experiences and because I didn't want to get to the end of my life and feel like I had missed it and not really lived because I kept on Googling uh, deathbed regrets and what people almost unanimously say on their deathbed is that they didn't show up for the ordinary. They kept on thinking they were going to get some where at some time where they could relax and take it in, but they never got there. And so I say that it's to pay attention to the ordinary and appreciate, appreciate, appreciate. And so that goes into another practice I have, which is what's not wrong to wake up in the morning. My daily practice now is that I wake up, I sense my body, I I realize, oh, I woke up. It's another day here on planet Earth. Great. I still have a body. Here I am. I look around. I orient myself, ground myself, um, take some breaths, 
really become aware of the sensations in my arms and my legs. So it's my own meditation that I've developed. And then based on many years of practicing and learning other meditations, and then ask myself, which I would recommend everybody do, even as you're listening to this, what's not wrong right now? What's not wrong right now? Because there are so many more things that aren't wrong than that are wrong. And when you ask yourself that question, you it's almost like a, a bolt of lightning. It's oh my goodness, I can't believe I haven't been paying attention to the smell of the air or to the fact that I'm drinking tea from my favorite teacup, to the fact that I can walk, to the to the fact that I have a one good friend, if not two good friends, uh, that I can breathe right now. I mean, there are just so many things that we skip over when we keep looking for the big experiences that are going to fix and or change anything and that we miss the dailiness, the daily extraordinary of the ordinary. Wow. That would be a great place to end, but <laughs> I want to ask you, I want to ask you one more question. Uh, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, you mentioned Ramdas. In the book, you describe uh, something with with Krishnamurti and, and being at Krishnamurti's house. I thought I was reading, you know, my own diary if I kept a diary. But you talk about uh, sitting in his house and and uh, you you wanted to see what he saw, feel what he felt, know what he knew. Which of course we both know is the opposite of what Krishnamurti would have asked of us. But I, I've been there many times. I've had the same thing going through my head. I was just curious if you could share with us. Uh, some of the spiritual teachers that that still speak to you. Yes, well, he's one, and his what I write about in that in in this messy, magnificent life is that he, when he told a group of people his secret, it was, "I don't mind what happens." Mm. And so that goes back to what we were talking about of acceptance and not fighting, not resisting, you know, because we, we, it's hard to really get that, that what we fight gets bigger and stronger. It doesn't go away. And, and his, I don't mind what happens also made me realize that when something happens, I, I, I elaborate on it with my own stories. And this, I learned from many teachers that I've studied with, from Nisar Gadada, uh, from his book, I Am That, from Eckhart Tolle, from Byron Katie, and from Krishnamurti. Uh, the fact that uh, we take a situation, any situation that happens to us, and we can't tell the difference between our reaction to the situation our interpretation of the situation, our feelings about the situation, our opinions about the situation and the situation itself. And it is that whole mental movement that creates such suffering. And so going back to, I don't mind what happens, he didn't have a story about it. It it happened, that was it. It was bare attention. It happened, acceptance, 
no, it shouldn't have happened. If it only hadn't happened, if I had been a different kind of person, it wouldn't have happened. If I just change this, then it won't happen again. Like that, no complaints, which I also talk about in the book. I started a non-complaining practice. Oh, that's beyond me. Fabulous, <laughs> fabulous. It changed everything. I recommend that people do it even for three hours. Stop complaining. See how that changes your outlook. See how oriented we are to negativity that we don't realize. Right. Okay. Well, that really does bring us to the end of the show. And I am complaining that we don't have more time, but that is the reality we are up against. Our guest today was Janine Roth. Her latest book is This Messy, Magnificent Life, A Field Guide. You can read an interview with Janine in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. And if you send her the receipt for the book, you can take a course based on the book, and you can find out more about that at her website, Janine Roth Book, all one word, JanineRothBook.com. Janine, thanks so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Yes, I've had a really good time. Well, thank you. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, training, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. Before we sign off, let me remind you that this year is the 20th anniversary of Spirituality and Health magazine. As part of our celebration, I'm leading an interspiritual tour of the Holy Land. This is part tour, part pilgrimage, as we engage in contemplative practices linked to the various sites we will visit, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Baha'i. For more information, please visit us at spiritualityhealth.com backslash holyland hyphen with hyphen Rami. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and to download the iTunes app for this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.